Good morning, Southfield. As promised, I brought a couple unfamiliar faces with me this week. Like Dad said last week, they are young and they are energetic. So stand up and get ready to sing along. probably meet them. Uh, in the back here we have Jorge. He also goes by George, but just call him Jorge. And then um, in the front we have Michael and JD and Andrew. So yeah, um, this next one we've done a couple times, um, but yeah, I just want you to um, focus on the words and um, yeah, not focus on the, the craziness of the band, but just focus on what the, the message of the song is saying. Call 
offer songs of loudest praise and teach me some melodious song yeah. sung by flaming tongues above and praise the mount I'm fixed upon it a mount of thy redeeming love Father God, we are ever so grateful for your grace. We don't deserve it, and that's the definition of grace, isn't it? You have poured out on us that which we cannot earn or deserve, and it's because of your goodness that we get to enjoy it. I thank you so much for being able to gather today and worship, to be able to be led in song, and now to be able to look at your word and understand what it is that you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, and have a seat. Well, that was a fun way to start, wasn't it? Good, good deal. Good morning. Good morning. Um, as you walked in, you got, a, you got a folder. On the inside is a card, and I need to tell you about something up front. It's part of the announcements that are written on there. Uh, one of the ways that we like to provide care for people is to provide meals in times of crisis. Now, a crisis isn't that your kid has soccer tonight and someone needs to provide a meal for you, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. Sometimes you have an extended hospitalization or, 
or a death in the family or something, and it's just helpful to have that. And so we, we found a way, actually, through technology, a thing called Meal Train, kind of a goofy name, but anyway, a way to be able to uh, provide meals for others. An email goes out, and basically it tells you the, the slots that are available. It tells you dietary restrictions. It tells you when the meal needs to be there, all that kind of stuff. And then you go ahead and enter your name and say, sure, I'd like to provide it. You actually list what you're going to provide so that the person that's receiving the meal know what's, knows what's coming. If you'd like to be a part of that, uh, on your card today on the back side in the little box, it mentions the meal train. Just check that off. Don't worry, you won't be providing like a, you know, a weekly meal or something like that. It'll happen occasionally. And, and you, because the email comes the way it does, you can decide if this is a good week to provide a meal or not. So... Make sure you go ahead and take advantage of that opportunity. And as always, you have your card. You just go ahead and put your name on it, your email. Let us know you were here. Uh, and on the back, there's that box for prayer requests as well for you to be able to go ahead and let us know what's going on in your life that needs some prayer. So in case you haven't been here for a couple weeks, I want to go ahead and catch you up on where we are in our teaching, what we've been talking about. We started a few weeks ago talking about this WWJD and the fact that it's not enough to know what would Jesus do. You know, we can theorize all day long about how Jesus might act if he lived in your house, interacted with your neighbors, if he went to your job, if he sat at your kid's baseball game, if he ate at your table, if he watched your TV, if he went on your computer, if he drove your car, or any other number of activities you might take on during a day. We could theorize all day long. The more fundamental question is, what did Jesus do? When he was here on earth, the the part that we have recorded in Scripture, what did he do? So as we explore the Gospels and look at the actions and attitudes of Jesus, only then do we get a sense of what it means to be like Jesus. And remember, that's the goal of your redemption. That's why God brought you into his family. Paul said in, in Romans 8, 29, that he chose us to become like his son. That's what it's all about right there. And that's what we're exploring in this season. How can we be more like Jesus? So far, we've looked at the way Jesus served, and we looked at the way Jesus obeyed. And you can catch both of those teachers if you want on the website and catch up on that. Last week, we got our brains rattled a little bit. I know I had some conversations with some of you, and you're kind of, you're struggling with this this line that we talked about and the concept that we talked about. I made a statement that just kind of left some people restless. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He said it many, many times. And in particular, we looked at John 35, where he said, I've come to do the will of him who sent me, not my own will. And doing the will of the Father is not always a happy thing. It doesn't always lead to happiness. We see Jesus crying out in the garden, asking that the cup of suffering be taken away from him, that he wouldn't have to endure it. And each of the three times he prays, he prays, not my will, not my will, but yours be done. And this led us to an important concept, that God calls us to live lives of holiness and to be like Jesus. And the path of holiness is not always about personal happiness. We spend some time on this statement. God does not want us to be happy. God wants us to be holy. Now, clearly, I'm not suggesting that holiness equals misery or that God's happiest when we're unhappy or that we make the choice that will make us most miserable and somehow that glorifies God. The issue is to be like Jesus, holy always trumps happy. Every time. We don't make our decisions based on how we'll feel. We make our decisions based on, will this cause me to be like Jesus, to look most like Jesus? It's a myth. In fact, I go so far as to say it is a lie from the pit of hell to buy into the notion of our times that happiness is the prime virtue and that our happiness quotient is the main determiner of our moral direction. A Christ follower is to become an expert in the pursuit of holiness. And not just pursue subjective happiness. So I hope you continue to take that statement and let it work into the soil of your soul. Really let it dig down deep and let it rattle your modern American mindset. Today what we're going to do is move from that setting, which was at the the final supper where Jesus uh, was prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. And we're actually going to move 
to the beginning of his ministry. We're going to move to some time in the wilderness. I asked you this past week to read several passages. And this is part of what we've been doing in this series. We give you a passage. It's found on the inside, on the back side of your folder. And we ask you to just read it every day if you can and allow those words to sink into your heart. And as you do, you're bombarding the passage with, with two questions. Simply, what did Jesus do? And then beyond that, what am I supposed to do in light of what Jesus did? So we had a set of verses here for you to read because we're really reading one story, but I wanted you to read it in several different settings, several different uh, gospels. So we had to do that, but every day we zeroed in on one set of verses. The ones from Hebrews 4.15 that says, This high priest, or another is Jesus, understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we did, yet he did not sin. Jesus was tempted. But he never gave in. He never, ever sinned. And that's what we're going to look at today. What does it mean to resist like Jesus resisted? How do we resist temptation? How do we resist sin the way Jesus resisted? Now, some people really struggle with this Hebrews passage. They say, well, of course he didn't sin. He's God. He couldn't sin. He had an advantage over us. And it is true. Jesus was 100% divine. At the same time, he was also 100% human. And while he did not have that seed of sin passed on to him from Adam, his humanity caused him to be capable of rebelling against God. Now, we could spend hours debating this. We could have a great theological conversation and go on and on and on. But here's the important part. Jesus Jesus endured temptation at a level no one ever has in this room. He endured it in a way that we don't. You see what happens to us when we're tempted? The pressure starts to build. And the pressure might get to 50% or 60% or even 70% and we go, that's it, I can't handle it anymore. Boom. And we go ahead and do the wrong thing. We, we let the pressure off. We decide we're going to go ahead and jump in. But every time Jesus was tempted, the pressure rose to 100%. It got as intense as it possibly could, and yet he did not give in to that sin. He didn't fall for the temptation. We can learn a lot from that. How did Jesus stand up to that pressure? How did Jesus resist to temptation? Now, before we dive into the answer, I want to make one other observation. If you were doing the reading this week, you came across something that might have been a little bit confusing. The three different Gospels talk about the temptations and the order of the temptations. Mark doesn't list them at all. He just says Jesus was tempted. Matthew and Luke list the temptations. And I've I've kind of abbreviated them here as bread, you know, make the stone into bread. No. Jump from this high place. No. Bow down and worship me. No. Matthew puts it in that order. Bread, jump, bow. And then you read Luke and he says it was bread, bow, jump. Maybe you didn't catch that and you're going, oh, how did I miss that? Maybe you saw it and it just ruined your week. Because you're like, why in the world are these different? What's going on here? I mean, let's face it. One of them has the chronological order wrong. One of them has it out of place. What's going on? So there are a few things going on here. The first thing we need to do is understand that, once again, we're up against an east versus west mindset. An eastern mindset versus a western mindset. The western world, when it comes to reporting history, is obsessed with chronology. We've got to get the dates in a row. I mean, isn't that what you did in school, at least back when I was in? You learned the dates. You learned them in order. You, you had to know the facts and get them all in place. For the Eastern world, it's not as important. It's not as big a deal to worry about chronology. They're using the facts to create a story, to develop a theme, to get a point across. And so they're not going to be as obsessed with the chronology as us. It's not that chronology doesn't matter. It's just not their main concern in getting the point across of what, we're, of what they're writing. Now, I promise you, you probably have some cynical friends. They're going to point at this and, and try to say, see, this is just one of many times that the Bible contradicts itself. There you go again, contradicting in the Bible. Well, the truth is that an actual contradiction, for these to be contradictory, Matthew would have to say that Jesus, for example, did not 
make the stone into bread. And the other said, he did make the stone into bread. They don't contradict. They just change the order. They just change the order of the facts. Kind of logic 101. What is happening here? The writer places these temptations in a certain order in order to emphasize a theme. Let me give you an example uh, from my life very, very recently. So yesterday we go to Millican Lake, and uh, Nate was there, and Brandon was there, I was there, and, and we, we, we went trout fishing. It's that annual day that you get to go catch some farm, farm-raised trout that they released into the lake two weeks ago. There was a chronology of our day. We woke up at 4.15. Yeah, I know. Only for fishing. Nothing else. 4.15. We got there at 5.10. Brandon caught the first fish around 5.30. Around 7.30, we were asked by the game warden to have a peek at our license to see whether or not we were legit fishermen or not. About 8.15, we left with 15 fish. We went to Cracker Barrel. Nate got pancakes. Brandon got the double meat breakfast. And I, of course, just fasted and watched them. Um, (laughs) I was so tempted to carry a trout in and say, would you cook this up for me? But I didn't. I didn't. Now... If I were going to tell you the story of yesterday, I doubt I would start with, we woke up at 4.15. I'd start with the part of the story that I love, the part where the game warden walked up. Game warden walked up and said, I need to see your licenses. And as I walked up, he said, you guys are killing it. I mean, we've been watching you from over in the bushes, and you are catching way more than everybody else. In fact, we need to see your bucket to see if you've caught too many fish. And I'm like... Yes, this is what it's all about right here. We are the best fishing trio on the lake. I'm not competitive about much, but I'm telling you what. We were the best fishermen on the lake. Who cares that we got up at 4.15? Who cares that Brandon ate the double meat breakfast? We were the best. And that's the point I got to get across. Now, if I didn't report the chronology to you, would you say, well, you got the story all wrong. What's wrong with you? I mean... You've got to tell us when you got up. You've got to tell us when you arrived. No, it's about making the point. And Luke was doing the same thing as well as Matthew. Their order was not about chronology. Their order was about telling the story and making a point. And that's a sermon in itself. All right? That's that's a totally different thing, trying to figure out why they did that. Now, if you're trying to figure out which one did get it right, I lean toward Matthew, and here's why. You may not see it in your English Bible the same way you might in original languages or some other versions of the Bible. But Matthew uses these terms that imply timing. He uses words like then and next. Luke only uses the word and. He says and he did this and this happened and this happened. Luke doesn't imply chronology at all. My tendency is to believe that Matthew is the one that has it in order. Having said that, what I'd like to do is look at the passage right now, see it again, read it again. And we're actually going to back up a little bit. We're going to go a little bit earlier. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 3, starting with verse 17. Because in order to understand the temptation, you've got to see what happened just before. It says, Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son. And he brings me great joy. Now we come to chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and he became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The Scripture said, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He goes on to say, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you. And they will hold you up with their hands. So you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, 
You must not put the Lord your God to the test. Next, the devil took him to the peak of the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. I will give it all to you if you will kneel and worship me. Jesus' response, get out of here, Satan. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of him. So that's what I asked you to read. And we apply the two questions and we're going to apply them today. The question, what did Jesus do? And what should we do in light of what Jesus did? How can we resist temptation the way Jesus resisted temptation. What I want to do is, is draw you to five actions on the part of Jesus. Five, five things that he did that we can build into our lives as well. And here's the first. Jesus listened to God. He listened to God. This, this goes back to the baptism in Matthew chapter 3. I mean, have you ever thought about why Jesus got baptized? Why do we get baptized? We get baptized to let people know we're devoted Christ followers, right? It's a declaration. Did Jesus get baptized to declare that he was following himself? I mean, what, what was that all about? Why, why is Jesus, He certainly didn't do it to say, now I'm a Christian. He was kind of the definition of it. What was going on there? Well, part of the reason that he got baptized is clearly stated in the words of Jesus himself. It should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. He got baptized for one simple reason. God said, do it. God said, you need to get baptized. And so Jesus said, okay. You know, they didn't have a committee meeting where Jesus was like, you know, I don't know about this baptism thing. It'll be a little humbling, and I should be a little bit above other people. Can we come up with something special for me? Maybe, maybe a different kind of baptism, rose petals. I don't know, something that just kind of sets me apart. He didn't argue it. He said, God, if that's what you want, that's what I'll do, period. Why do we fall for temptation? Because we see what God wants and we say, I don't know. I don't know. I get a better idea. I get a better plan. I get get a better way of pulling this off. I get something else I want to do. Instead of looking at the black and white words of the word of God and saying, God, if that's what you want, then I will obey. If that's what you want, then I will listen. His listening moved beyond just hearing. He heard and he acted. He truly listened to God. He was able to resist sin because he wanted to do what God wanted. He listened to God. He didn't just hear him. He really listened. He heard and obeyed. The Father's will was the supreme desire of Jesus' life. We talked about that last week. Why do we sin? We sin because our hearts are not fully satisfied with God. And we will only be able to reject that sin when we begin to realize that God is to be more desired than life itself. It begins with listening to God, doing what he says. I exist to fulfill the desires of God, not my own desires. Jesus was able to resist because he listened to God. So test yourself today. If that's what Jesus did, what should I do in light of what Jesus did? Am I listening? When God says this is what I should do, am I doing it unquestioningly? Or am I debating him, challenging him, deciding to go off in my own path? Second, he resisted because he was willing to be led by the Spirit. We saw this in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I tell you what, these, that verse alone is worth pondering for days. The thought that, that the Holy Spirit actually led Jesus to a place that was unsafe, to a place that was harsh, to a place where there was somebody waiting for him who wanted to draw him into sin. And we know full well, he wanted to kill him. Satan wanted to end the life of Jesus. The Spirit led Jesus to a place of incredible danger. And yet, because the Spirit was leading him into the wilderness, Jesus followed. He didn't question it. He knew he was being led there, and he followed. The wilderness is an essential place in every spiritual journey. You may not live near a physical desert, but I promise you, your spiritual journey has has had to endure and embrace some wilderness experiences. You may be in the middle of one right now. A wilderness is a place of loneliness and isolation. It's a place that desires to kill us, to rob the joy from our souls. It's a place of deprivation 
where we find no spiritual food or water. We are just out there starving. Like I said, you may have been in the wilderness before. You may be in one right now. Every time I come to a point that I'm being led by the Spirit to a wilderness, basically two questions come up. God, do I really have to? Are you really going to make me go there? Is there any way that I can avoid this season in the desert? And then, if ultimately it is determined because of the circumstances that I'm headed to the desert, my next question is, God, when does this get to be done? Can, can we just microwave this thing? Can we get through this experience as fast as possible? Because the wilderness is kind of a miserable place, and you want to get through it fast. Jesus followed the Spirit willingly. He did not resist. He did not try to short-circuit the process, suggesting an alternative or hastening the length of the days. If we're going to be like Jesus, we need to embrace the wilderness experiences, these wilderness places in our lives, these places that the Spirit takes us. You know why? Because that's a place of growth. The growth doesn't always happen in the beach and the sunshine. The growth happens in the wilderness places, in the tough places of our life. What else did Jesus do? We have him listening to God. We have him led by the Spirit. We also see that he he leaned on spiritual practices. And for this one, um, we see that that he, he practices ancient spiritual disciplines. He fasted. He prayed. Now, I'm going to be saving this one. We'll actually be covering it sometime after Easter, just spending time talking about the prayer practices of Jesus and and why Jesus prayed and how Jesus prayed, because it's an important part. If we're going to be like Jesus, we need to spend some time on our knees before our Father. But I want you to think about this. Jesus was human, and because he was human, he understood what it means to have to resist temptation. He got it. It's, if he had come and was only God, if he was only 100% divine, there's a sense in which we could say, you're not like us. You don't understand what it's like to be a human being. Jesus did understand what it was like to be a human being. And in his humanness, he needed to spend extended times in solitude. He needed to practice the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting and other disciplines. And I ask you this, if Jesus, who was both God and man, he has the edge of divinity, okay? If he needed to stay pure through prayer and fasting, how much more do we need it? How much more do we need to pray if Jesus found the need to pray? So again, we'll come back to that after Easter. Let's move on to number four. What else did Jesus do? He learned scripture. This is obvious, right? Satan's throwing the temptations at him. And what's his response? I don't know about that, Satan. Sounds like a really bad idea. Here's my opinion on this. No, what does he do? He throws back scripture, and I promise you, he didn't have a little pocket New Testament. Well, there wasn't one yet. Pocket Old Testament from the Gideons. Whip that out and say, you know, well, here's a verse that says. He knew these verses. He knew scripture. Now, clearly when it comes to the the temptations, this is the classic angle that's taken on this. That one of the ways you resist temptation is to know scripture to state scripture, in order to fight Satan with scripture. And though it's common, it's true, and it bears repeating. Jesus fought the evil one with scripture. Every suggestion of Satan, Jesus responds with a verse. Why? Two things. Jesus showed us that like prayer and fasting, there is great power to be found in combating the spiritual forces of darkness with the word of God. It's important to combat Satan with the word of God. Now, please understand, when we quote scripture, when Jesus was quoting scripture, he wasn't trying to make a convert of Satan. You know, it's not as if Satan was going to bow at that moment and say, that's it, I accept you, it's over, it's done. It doesn't work that way. It's not as if there's some, some magic in that. Now, when we quote scripture, we're not trying to make a convert of Satan. What we're trying to do, actually, is remind ourselves of the truth. Because in moments of temptation, we start to believe lies. In moments of temptation, we start to push aside the truth and surround ourselves with friends who will tell us what we want to hear instead of what the truth of Scripture says. And so when we're actually quoting Scripture, when we can go to a passage, when we know what the objective truth of the Word of God says, 
No matter what anybody else might be saying or no matter what our head might be telling us, we know what God says. We need to learn Scripture well enough that we can combat the, uh, the lies of Satan with the truth of the Word of God. How do we do that? How does it work? Well, obviously, you're, you, the way we begin is just reading Scripture, taking it in. Hearing scripture, reading it. We memorize scripture, memorize verses that are there like Jesus, ready to go in that moment of temptation. Your word have I hid in my heart. Why? So I don't sin against you. Most importantly, we meditate on scripture. This means that it may not be I'm going to race through reading the whole Bible in 90 days, but I'm going to take a passage and I'm just going to let it soak in and think about it and really let it settle in. One thing that Jesus did that, that I think is important for us to get in the habit of Jesus actually said the verses out loud. He said them out loud. And there's something about saying something out loud, your own hearers hear it. Your own, it's not just stuck in your head. Your own ears hear it. And it reinforces the truth of the Word of God. So, look at this list again. He listened to God. He was led by the Spirit. He leaned on spiritual disciplines. He learned Scripture. And then there's one last one. He let others refresh him. He let others refresh him. There's this sweet verse, verse 11. Then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. We are prone to temptation for a couple of reasons. We try to do life on our own. We think we can handle it. And so we kind of just become a free agent out there, and we don't depend on other people. And we let ourselves get run down. We let ourselves get excessively tired, physically and spiritually worn out. We're pretty self-made people. We're independent. And we try to keep going no matter what. The more you live in isolation and the more you wear yourself out, you increase the vulnerability of your soul to the desire for sin. We need spiritual friends will help take care of our souls. We may not necessarily be able to count on angels descending from heaven to minister to us, but we have friends all around us, spiritual friends who care for us and want to help us stay away from the temptations of Satan. So there you see the list, the five things. And what was the result? This high priest Jesus understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testing we do, yet He did not sin. Lists of five aren't always easy to implement. You know, we're wanting to resist like Jesus resisted. And now you're going to take these five and put them on a card. And all week long, you're going to work on it. Let me go for a different suggestion. You pretty much know how your life works when it comes to temptation. One of these, one of these speaks to you today. One of these is, is the thing that you need to work on this April. Just one. Zero in on it. Maybe it's time to spend a little bit more time learning some scripture or to be willing to walk into that wilderness where the spirit is leading you right now and to actually embrace the wilderness experience instead of resisting it. You know which one hits you. I just want to suggest to you today, take one, embrace it for the rest of the month, work it, and watch the way God strengthens you to begin to resist temptation much more like Jesus. To be like Jesus, we must resist temptation like Jesus resisted temptation. Let's offer a prayer to God. Our Father in heaven, I am grateful to you for the example of Jesus. His life on earth helps us to know and understand what it means to live for you, how to live for you, God, I pray that we would pay better attention to the way he lived and that we would incorporate into our own lives the practices he practiced so that we can live up to the goal of our redemption, the reason for which you chose us, to be like Jesus. Amen. As we prepare for communion, um, I'm going to go ahead and read once again the Lenten reading we've been doing from this uh, booklet called Lent, a Season of Returning. And communion is going to be distributed to you during the reading. So as it's distributed, would you just go ahead and hold on to it and listen to it? And then we'll take communion together at the end of this reading. This reading is about suffering. Jesus died that we might live. 
The author says, I'll never forget walking to lunch with several young leaders after a teaching I had done on a season of the spiritual life in which God is dismantling the false self in order for the true self to emerge more fully. We had talked about the fact that this season feels like death, like a wilderness. And in fact, the death of that which is false in order for something truer to come to life. Clearly, the teaching had unnerved them. For as we walked together, one of them asked, does, everything have, does everyone have to go through this painful place in the spiritual life? I stopped and thought for a moment and finally said the only thing I could think to say. Well, even Jesus had to die in order for the will of the Father to come forth in his life. This week's Lenten lesson brings us face to face with one of the great paradoxes of our faith. That in order to really live, we must die. That before we can reign with Christ, we must first share in his sufferings. That when God begins to do a new thing, old things must pass away. That in order to experience the resurrection, we too must die. That's the bad news. The good news is that the only thing the only thing we stand to lose is the false self, which was never real anyway. The only thing passing away is that crusty old thing that is no longer useful. Lent, then, is a time to practice dying in small ways so that when the bigger deaths come, we will know how to let go of that which is no longer needed. It is a time to learn obedience in and through the things we suffer just like Jesus did. It is a time for experiencing what it is like to have our outer nature wasting away while our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Listen to this prayer. Yes, Lord, I have to die with you, through you, and in you. And thus become ready to recognize you when you appear to me in your resurrection. There is so much in me that needs to die false attachments, greed and anger, impatience and stinginess. Oh, Lord, I am self-centered, concerned about myself, my career, my future, my name, my fame. Often I even feel that I use you to my own advantage. Yes, Lord, I know it is true. I know that often I have spoken about you, written about you, and acted in your name and for my own glory and success. Your name is has not led me to persecution or oppression or rejection. Your name has brought me rewards. I see clearly how little I have died with you, really gone your way and been faithful to it. O Lord, make this Lenten season different from the others. Let me find you again. Amen. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you in remembrance of me. Every time you take it, remember me. Go ahead and eat the bread right now. Jesus also took the cup. He said, this is a new covenant, a new promise. It's signed in my blood. My blood makes makes this happen. And every time you drink this cup, Remember me until I come back. Drink the cup together. Now we're going to give you a chance to do some reflecting on Jesus, this suffering servant, the one that suffered for us in order that we might experience eternal life, the one who was willing to be led by the Spirit into the wilderness, followed the Father's will onto the cross, so that we could have eternal life. Carry 
All our griefs and all our sorrows, we esteemed him not, but despised him, and considered him afflicted, and he's one reviled by God. Through all of us have gone astray, through all eternity. He did not lash out, but was silent, like a lamb led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. Though all of us have gone astray, though all have turned to their own ways, the Lord has laid our wickedness on him. Punishment is wrought as peace and crushed for all iniquities. He died to save his people from their sin. The mind of Yahweh stands There's so many things about this season, Jesus, that, um, that move us deeply. We're, we're reminded time and time again of your love. And, and, and one for me this day is that you were willing to walk headlong into suffering. You knew what was coming and you didn't avoid it. Thank you for doing that for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our service will come right now and receive the offering. have a few things for you. Um, I want to say thanks again to everybody who was involved in cleaning the I&M Canal path. I was able to do some walking this week, praying along the path. i got to tell you about this one day. It was pretty incredible, okay? So there's no litter. I don't have anything distracting me. Woo-woo, nice. That's great. I'm walking along, and I see something stir out of the corner of my eye. I look, and a bald eagle goes launching from a tree. And then another bald eagle goes along for me. I'm like, am I in Montana? No, I'm in Shanahan. This is mind-blowing. I mean, the eye of Saron is glowing out there right by me, and eagles are flying into there. It was amazing. I'm walking a little further, and a deer decides to swim across the canal to the other side. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. And then I see this black thing. It's flying toward me right down the path. I'm like, what is it? It's huge. It was a turkey. This turkey goes flying over my head right on by, and I'm like, like, oh my word, this is incredible. Thanks for cleaning the path. 
It's just been fun to go back and walk and pay it. I'm sure that there were eagles and turkeys all the time. And I was just going, stupid can. You know, so very, very nice. Thanks again for ministering in that way. That's cool. We already mentioned you have another way that you can minister. And I already talked about it. So I just want you to see the slide. If you actually go to this site, mealtrain.com, you can kind of check it out, see what's there. You do need to register for an account in order to do this. Uh, I registered so far. I'm not receiving anything spammy about food. But if I did, I'd probably be happy. So anyway, uh, there, there that is for you to be able to see. And we have one more thing for you. Yeah, look at that. Woohoo! It's all done. Isn't that great? This is what we paid $2.5 million for right here. It's amazing. So next week we can go ahead and meet on the property. And we've got a stone driveway. No, there's going to be a lot going on now. The, tomorrow they got the little air out there. You may have seen it. And more cones than you've seen in your lifetime. We'll be moving a whole bunch of heavy equipment in there. Starting to stir up dirt and have fun with that. So we've got a lot of reasons to celebrate as we move into this spring. Every time you drive by that place, just keep smiling, keep praying. We do need rain for the ground. We don't need rain for the project. So you can let God decide on the rain, but I vote no rain. All right. So whatever. Uh, We're going to be singing another song. It's the song that Shelly taught us last week. So you got a head start on it. And before the gang leads us in singing, I want to say thanks for being here. I really appreciate you coming and ministering to us and with us. Nice to see you too. So let's go ahead and sing. Why don't you stand up? at the fall, running away when I'd hear you call, but Father, you worked your will. I had no righteousness of my own, I had no right to draw near your throne, but Father, you loved me still. And in love before you laid the world's foundation, you predestined to adopt me as your own. You have raised me up so high above my station. I'm a child of God by grace and grace alone. the lost. You knew the great and terrible cost, but Jesus, your face was set. I worked my fingers down to the bone, but nothing I did could ever atone. But Jesus, you paid my debt. And by your blood, I have redemption and salvation. Lord, you died that I might reap what you have sown. In you rose that I might be a new creation. I am born again by grace and grace alone. I was in darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night. But spirit, you made me see. I swore I knew the way on my own. And full of rocks, a heart made of stone. The spirit you moved in me. At your touch, my sleeping spirit was awakened. On my darkened heart, the light of Christ has shone. Called into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Heavy sin is in by grace and grace alone. So I'll stand in faith by grace and grace alone. I will run the race by grace and grace alone. I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. I will reach the end by grace and grace alone. 
get one more, right? Yeah, at least one more. Okay. (laughs) Search my heart and search my soul. There's nothing else that I want more. Shine your Be sure to thank them as you leave and have a great Sunday.